and welcome to the City of the Great King podcast with your host, Tyler Swatsky. That's me. Hello. Glad that you're here. Episode 17. 17. Well on our way to 17,000. We are talking... This one is titled Real Unity Principles for Uniting Denominations. Glad you're stopping by. Wanted to take a moment to thank everybody who has supported the podcast by becoming a patron. We gained a new patron this past week. Yes, we have. That is your way to uh, to, do- to give to the work that is going on here, to support me. If you are getting anything out of this podcast, uh, if you are helped by it, please consider becoming a patron. It, the standard option of being a patron is only five bucks a month. Of course, you are welcome to give more. That would be fine with me. But anything helps. And yeah, I'm thinking of different ways to to uh, interact with patrons. I'm thinking possibly doing patron interviews. I think that could be pretty cool. And it's just off the cuff, like not, not like a, uh, me giving a topic per se, but we talk about what matters most to the patron. I think that would be pretty fun. But please consider doing that, and a big thank you to those who have. You can find the link to that in the description of the podcast on whatever you listen to it on. And if for some reason it doesn't work there, you can find the Facebook page, City of the Great King Podcast, or my Twitter account, at SawatskyTJ. Thank you in advance for that. I am attempting to get back to my original episode length goal, which this was supposed to max out at 35 minutes, and uh, too, too frequently I get into the 40-minute mark. So we are going to try to get into that sweet spot of 30 to 35 minutes consistently. Of course, if it's pressing to go five minutes more, we will, but that's, that's what we're aiming for. So if it feels a bit shorter, then it's because it's supposed to. So let's get into it. Last week, or in episode 16, we talked about the problem of denominations, and I'm just broaching the subject of it. In a sense, I think I may have already accomplished my goal, and I will tell my, I'll say my goal in a bit, but just the fact that we are now exposed to this idea that denominations are not, should, should not be looked at passively or as even a good thing, although I don't think most of us think of it as a good thing, we just don't really think about the problem of denominations and how disunited Christ's church is. Like, the fact that this is even a problem doesn't dawn on most Christians, at least not most Western Christians. I can't say what it is like in other parts of the world. And we do have to deal, because this is a big issue and because not many of us are used to speaking about this, we have to deal with the principles first. And that's important because before we come to detailed solutions, we need a big enough vision. And this is true much beyond just this topic. It's anything. If you are, if you need to start coming to solutions about a complex or a large problem, you need to have big enough vision first. And what I'm talking about is enlarging our perspective. Enlarging our perspective is the first key to this discussion. Which is why simply thinking about the problem of denominations and 
and beginning to think of how we can solve it is already a major development. I gave you a brief history lesson of how denominations started uh, in the first place and when splits started happening last session, but since we have started allowing splits in the church, it has just happened at an exponential level, and it, it appears to me, at least, sensible that maybe we can begin turning this around if we start talking about it and thinking about it. Like, can we divide into even more denominations, or can we declare that this is the end of new denominations? Like, we already have enough. Do we really want to keep on dividing more and more and more? So if, the, if my goal is to already get us thinking big picture about this, then it, I think that it may have already been accomplished last week, and it's going to continue today and probably in episode 18 as well. So start thinking about this, and that's obviously what's going to happen if you're listening. I come with a slight advantage on this topic over other Christians who have only ever been in one denomination. Many believers come, uh, they were raised in the church, and they stay in the denomination that they were raised in. If you were raised Presbyterian, you probably don't have much experience with the Baptists. If you were raised Pentecostal, you probably don't know many Presbyterians, you don't know many Methodists, you don't know many Anglicans, like, whatever you're raised in is typically what you stay in. Uh, so I have a slight advantage in personal experience with denominationalism, as I have had experience with at least four different denominations in my life. My first few years of life were actually in a evangelical Mennonite church, but I was like six years old when, when we moved, and that's when I joined the Pentecostal church, the charismatic one, and I was part of the charismatic church for nearly 20 years. I went to their their school. I got a whole degree from from that, from the Charismatics. So I know them well. Uh, I, th I think I can speak with some level of authority regarding uh, Pentecostals. So I have a lot of experience with that. But then after that, I was part of the Associated Gospel Churches, the AGC. They are a Baptist-type denomination uh, that is relatively broad in whom they allow in. And after that, I joined the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists, FEB. And so those are the three that I've actually been personally long-term involved in. And if you include the Evangelical Mennonite one for my first few years, that makes four. But then I also have personal connections to an independent Baptist church here in Windsor, the biggest one in, in our area, as well as I have connections to the Reformed Presbyterians who are here. I meet on a a nearly weekly basis with some charismatics from one of the biggest charismatic churches in all of the county. So I've had a lot of exposure to different, from Christians of other denominations. I have seen the issues in denominational distinctives and even the people attracted to each one. For instance, it has been uh, my lived experience as well as just study on the issue seems to confirm this observation that the most theologically driven people uh, will end up moving to in a more um, doctrinally systematic direction, and that often leads them more to be more reformed. That has been my observation. That's been my personal plight as well. 
And so that, that's something that I noticed in the charismatic circles. You have a lot of people whose strengths revolve around kindness. In, a lot of charismatics are incredibly kind people. They're very hospitable. They go out of their way to be, to be comforters, to provide for others. They're missional in their mindsets. Um, but it's a, it's a harder place to be if you are very theologically and doctrinally minded in a systematic, logical way. That might not sit too well with some charismatics, but it's just the truth. That I've seen it not only in myself, but the most theologically inclined of my classmates ended up going in a reform direction. And then I see in these very theologically minded denominations, uh, and churches specifically, even in, even in my own Calvinist Baptist church, there can be sometimes a lack of some of the gifts that I saw all the time in the charismatics, where it can be a struggle sometimes to put together uh, committees to deal with real-life problems and showing exuberant kindness and hospitality to people. Sometimes that's more of a struggle. It can be tough to explain, but we will be attracted to the denomination that is most in line with our spiritual gifts. And this is another issue with denominations. When we're so split the way that we are, you will have all of the most, all of our brightest intellectuals in the same couple denominations. And our most kind and warm-hearted people who aren't as uh, systematically minded will then all be in, in other denominations. So you have an overabundance of certain spiritual gifts in one denomination and then other spiritual gifts in another and we're not interacting much we're not building together we're not working together in fact as time goes on we're only hardening more and more into our denominational divides and then we end up becoming just inward focused and dividing again and then so not only do you have a Pentecostal church a Methodist church an Anglican church a Presbyterian church and a Baptist church but over time instead of these denominations coming together and we work out some of these distinctions, you'll then have two pen different Pentecostal churches and two different Baptist churches and two different Presbyterian churches and not of the same denomination. They'll be of different denominations. They'll have divided over something. So different gifts are emphasized in different denominations, and I think that's another consideration that when we're so divided denominationally, we lose out on the spiritual gifts that our brothers and sisters from other traditions can show to us and to, to teach us, to example for us. Now, in all of my experience with the different denominations, I have come to what I think are relatively perceptive conclusions or observations about them. For instance, I mentioned that when I told my story of deconstruction from charismatic theology, that the a lot of charismatic denominations are ripe for apostasy. And I say that because they have lost out on many of our brightest intellectuals. And if they're not going out of their way to find them in other tr traditions and denominations, you are very prone to accepting false teaching and to the liberalizing of Christianity. And as, uh, as Machen so wonderfully and eloquently wrote some 115 years ago, that liberalism and Christianity are totally opposite religions even. They don't go together. Uh, now, even though this is my observation, I do not doubt the salvation, the love for Christ of people in these various denominations, even the charismatics. And that's why I was very clear to say that when I 
told the story. Many of them are genuine brothers and sisters in the Lord. We can break bread together. We can hear the gospel and be in worship together with them. Uh, same thing with the Presbyterians. Even though I am in a Baptist church, like my, my Presbyterians are my brothers and my sisters. Same thing with Anglicans. Remember, we have more unity when we hold to a, a faithful expression of the gospel than we do a denominational expression of the gospel. So, again, just to remind you, we ha I have more unity with a conservative charismatic than I have with a liberal Baptist, even though I'm in a Baptist church. And a conservative Presbyterian has more in common with a conservative Anglican than they do with a liberal Presbyterian. So already we should be thinking of, and this is principle number one, we should be consistently thinking of believers from other denominations as our brothers and our sisters. So as long as they are not obviously holding to, to heresy, like things that actually keep you away from the kingdom, like denying divinity of Christ, denying the Trinity, um, others, other such type of damnable heresies, if that's not the case, then at worst they are in uh, there. There's some error in the fine points of their theology, and that will lead to its methodology. Whatever you think, that ends up being what it looks like in practice. This is why it's really important. Like theology is important. I'm not at all trying to say that we should just smooth over all doctrinal differences as though it doesn't matter. That we should have some false unity that discounts theological precision. Precision is important, no doubt. I'm not saying that it isn't. Uh, however, if we are not willing to say that some of these people are cast out from the kingdom, uh, and, and most Christians will say that, yeah, you can be gen genuinely saved in the Methodist church. If you hear the gospel, you can stay in the Methodist church and still be saved. You can be an Anglican and be saved. You can be all sorts of things and still be saved. So we're not barring them from the kingdom. And this means Christ is not barring them from the kingdom, but we'll bar each other from working together in a unified way in the church. So apparently we think that we will be in glory in eternity and have unity with one another, but we can't have ministerial unity here on earth. Again, that's a question I posed in session 16. If what is in heaven is a copy of what is, or if what's on earth is a copy of what's in heaven, and in heaven we're going to have this unity before the Lord, we should be pursuing that unity here. And I know that we already have a sense of this unity in the spiritual sense. When Christ prayed, let them be one as you and I are one, referring to the Father. Certainly he, his prayer is answered in the spiritual sense. We have unity with other believers. But if we have a spiritual unity with other believers, does that are we not supposed to include in his prayer and what Jesus is praying for the the unity in a physical sense as well, in an organizational sense? So we're, we're to be thinking about what a unified church would look like. And I'm not naive. I, this is not going to happen in my lifetime. I know this. It's not going to happen in any of our lifetimes. I was saying uh, uh, an intelligent brother commented on Facebook and he made some very good comments and then in my response, I just mentioned that we it, it took a lot of years for us to divide as we have. It took over 400 years for the first genuine schism, uh, split to happen, where we're not calling each other heretics, but 
we disagreed, the Syrian and the Egyptian churches split off from the main church. It took about 400 years before that happened. And then it took another 600 years after that before we had the big schism between East and West in 1054. And then the Reformation was 500 years after that, and now you have three major denominations, and then it's basically been open season ever since. There's there's splits in all three of the branches, even the Catholics, even though they don't like to, to be open about that. But we're going to start thinking about what a unified church looks like. Number one, consistently think of believers from other denominations as your brother and sister. If you are a Baptist here, look at the Methodists and don't, do, don't be afraid or don't hesitate to call them a brother or sister if they make a profession of faith in Christ. You are not their spiritual judge. And you could even have in the back of your head, perhaps they do hold to damnable heresy, but you don't know. And you're not the judge of their soul. And you are not the judge of their soul in the ultimate sense, as in being Christ the judge, but you're also not in any type of spiritual authority over them. You're not their pastor. You're not their elder. They would have a better idea of their spiritual status than you do. And if you are a charismatic, you should be looking at your Calvinist contemporaries as brothers and sisters in the, in the faith as well. Start thinking about people from other denominations as your brother or sister. They can have less precision than you and still be a, a brother or sister. So start calling them that. Think of them as that. Number two. Principle number two, be involved with believers from other denominations. This is the natural outflow of number one. If you're going to start consistently thinking of believers of other denominations as brothers and sisters, start being involved with believers from other denominations. So for me, as I was mentioning before, I have regular fellowship with the Reformed Presbyterians here in Windsor. Not only that, I have regular fellowship with Independent Baptists. And they are Cal other Calvinistic Baptists, but they're not part of my denomination. In fact, they are not part of any denomination. And I have very regular contact with them. I had one of their pastors interviewed on this podcast. It has been an intentional thing for me to forge trusting, lasting, deep, encouraging relationships with believers from other traditions and denominations. And I maintain relationships with some charismatics too. I have not lost touch with all of that. So my thinking on this issue affects my actions because I see them as believers united in this mission for Christ in the world to bring the gospel to all nations, to teach and baptize them, the Great Commission talk. Because I have that as a point of my thought, that then flows into my action. I am involved with believers from other denominations. I encourage you to be as well. And even, even if you're not, your goal is not to try to work towards denominational unity, that Christ's prayer of oneness in the church be fully answered and fulfilled, even if it's not in the big principle part, even just in the sense that we have deep spiritual needs in our nation. In Canada, in America, so in our continent we have deep needs, and of course in our whole world. If we think about how many unreached people there are and how many unchurched people there are, we need a heck of a lot more churches. We see this sometimes in very inward-focused churches where, say, you have a Baptist church in town, and then another Baptist church from another denomination, you hear they're coming in, and they're going to plant their church in your area. And, oh, that... That's a no-no. Like you, you almost get resentful of it. You're not happy with it. 
you can find points of contention about it, especially if they didn't contact you first, which I would encourage. If there's church plans, you should be contacting pretty much every other church that's already there and try to forge connections. But if you hear of another church being planted in your area, we can get skeptical and even hope for their failure because they might take Christians from us or they, you know, if they have a more energetic pastor, they'll, people will come just based on his, his uh, dynamism or his, how charismatic he is or whatever. And yet, that this is a big problem if you're very inward focused. But if you are outward focused and you are concerned with the bigger picture, then you see that our mission is to win people for Christ. And in terms of God's sovereignty, all we are doing is putting the gospel out irrespective of who the person is, and God's elect will respond. They will come to faith. And so we should be welcoming believers from other traditions and denominations coming into our area, planting more churches in the Windsor area, the city of Windsor, uh, and then we'll put in the two other municipalities that are ba right beside Windsor. We're basically all just one being Windsor, Tecumseh, and LaSalle. Our population, if you combine it, is uh, right around 300,000, maybe a shade under, but let's go with 300,000 is Windsor, Tecumseh, LaSalle. That's my area. My church that I work at, that I am on staff at, we can hold just under 400 people. I'll just say 400 people we can hold in our service. Let's say that we have two services on a Sunday. We do have two services, a morning and an evening, but we don't have two in the morning that are like identical uh, to each other. So we have 400 people, and then we can host another 400 if they come back in the evening. But let's say we have two services, uh, so we can host 800 people in our church. That is 800 churched people at a maximum in a area of, in a, in a city of 300,000 people. Now, let's just imagine that Windsor has 100 churches. 100 churches, and each of them are getting 800 people like my church. My church doesn't get 800 people, but let's just say that we have 100 churches, each are getting 800. Do the math. What, what is, literally, I haven't done math since grade 12, so I'm typing in my calculator right now. 800 times 100 equals 80,000. If we have 100 churches in Windsor, and they each have 800 people coming to their churches, that equals 80,000 people out of 300,000. And I'm not even in Toronto. I'm not in Montreal, although I lived there for a couple years. I'm not in Vancouver. I'm not in Washington, D.C. I'm not in New York, not in Chicago. Like, in my own city and area, and we don't have a hundred, uh, like, these numbers aren't even the real picture. So even if we max out the churches that we have, we are not even getting close to the amount of people who are in my area. So think bigger. We need to be involved with believers from other denominations because the mission is bigger than your denominational mission. It's the church mission. We have deep spiritual needs. We should welcome more churches, lots of churches. So let's support one another. Principle number three. Start applying denominational unity thinking into divisive issues. All right, so if we're thinking about denominational unity... Now let's start thinking about applying this into the divisive issues. And this is where a lot of people have problems with this talk about denominational unity. Because, oh, how are we going to resolve our differences on baptism? Like, how does that actually functionally work? 
a great principle, but how is this going to work in terms of uh, if we should have closed communion or open communion? That's a legitimate thing. Like, is it just for the regenerate members of our church only, closed communion, or open communion? Anybody who professes to be a believer and is in good standing with their church can take communion if they're in your church. So we can get trapped into practical considerations that stop us from doing the hard work of applying denominational unity thinking into divisive issues. But here's another thing. There's actually very little written work on this idea about uniting denominations. Like, I've been reading a couple books on it. Uh, Thomas McCree has a book that he wrote like 40 years ago on this about uniting the churches. John Frame has a book on it. Vern Poitras has written on it. There's a few articles and blogs, but there's really not much on this. And maybe there's more in the last couple years that I haven't seen, but the books that I've read on this are from like 40 and 30 years ago. There's a lot of work to be done on this because we've become so content to just let this continue to divide. Let Christ's bride be quartered and then eighthed, whatever that is, and then sixteenthed. We're just so willing for this to happen because this is the case. Oh, what can we do about it? Nothing we can do. This is death, taxes, and Christians dividing, right? So we need to do a lot of work on this. And much of the movement towards unity will come from legions of more Christians seriously thinking about and applying unity thought into daily life. So I can't be the one who solves all these issues. None of the books I've read can solve all the issues. Uh, I'm Again, I've already conceded that we're not going to see my vision on this in my lifetime. I'm dealing with principles. I'm going to give the principles. But it's going to be up to scores of Christians applying this thinking into the divisive issue. So, you have an infant Baptist, a paedo-Baptist, and a baptism uh, to believers only, credo-Baptist, to adult uh, or professing believers. So you have a paedo-Baptist and a credo-Baptist Christian. Neither are willing to say the other one is cast away from the kingdom, and we're going to be in eternal glory together. We're going to be united then. So, uh, let's start working towards unifying that now. What does that look like? Do you think a church can survive with both Pado-Baptist members and Credo-Baptist members? Or, let me put this another way, do you actually think that it is completely impossible to have a church that baptizes believers by immersion, or as well as baptizing the infants of their Pado-Baptist convicted members? Do you actually think that's impossible, that we can't do it? If you are quick to say yes, that, that there's no way to make that work, then you are probably far more inward focused than you realize and have been influenced a lot more by individualistic enlightenment thought. And I would have to go down a huge detour to go down that route of how individualistic our thinking is but and the historical considerations there. But a lot of us have to individually think about oh yes, we do have to work to solve this issue. Yeah, there's practical implications here, but I need to have as the forefront that this needs to work. So now how do I make it work? Because not one of us is going to solve all the issues. So a lot of us need to think about it. Principle number four, work generationally. Work generally, generationally. Because this is a long-term focused thing, then we need to work in such a way that 
we know that we're not going to solve it in our lifetime, but we're laying the groundwork for our children to continue it, our grandchildren to continue it after that. So think about this. It took the church hundreds of years to authoritatively define some important doctrine. For instance, the nature of Christ wasn't quite defined until Chalcedon. Uh, the Trinity wasn't quite defined until Nicaea. Like, these are councils that came three and four hundred years after the time of the first apostles, apostles, after the time of Christ. It took us a long time to authoritatively define important doctrine. So, and, and that happened in a unified church. Like, there wasn't all these different denominations. The, the one true united church took three hundred years to define the nature of the Trinity. And I think we're going to find, and we have to be honest about the fact, that there's a lot of Christians in those first 300 years that probably held, did hold, to what we call heretical doctrines about the Trinity, or even about the nature of Christ. It was The church had not quite uh, came to the conclusion about what, how the Bible talks about all these things. The Bible does talk about it. But they saw that it's our role to defend Christian doctrine, to define it, to protect it from corruption and heresy. And a, a united church took hundreds of years to define these doctrines. Now that we are in complete division, what really can we define today? Seriously, if a huge issue impacts the church one year, like we've had since 2020, the issue of civil authority, the route, how much power and authority the civil magistrate has over the church. This is not a new issue, but can we authoritatively define what we think about that issue today? We just had a, a statement put out, the Frankfurt Declaration, uh, recently from a bunch of church leaders. That helps, um, but that's not going to be accepted by the one true church. It'll be accepted by a few members in a few denominations. We don't have the authoritative declarative power that the early church had. And so it's going to take a long time to put this back together. It's taken us a long time to divide like this, work generationally. And also, here's a consideration. This is simply consistent kingdom work. Christ's kingdom is here. Christ's kingdom is growing. He said it's like a mustard seed that is going to continue to grow and be larger than any other plant in the garden. It'll be like a tree and all these types of birds and animals will find their place there. Uh, that's the analogy that Christ gave for his kingdom. So his kingdom is going to expand. It's going to grow. It's going to be successful. The Great Commission is, is already successful and is going to continue to be. We are going to have, we should have optimism about the kingdom of God and about how expansive it's going to be. He is going to eliminate his enemies. He, 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until every enemy is put under his feet and then the end will come. So, is denominational disunity an enemy of Christ? Is it an enemy of Christ that we are so divided like we are? Come on, you have to say yes it is. There's no way that when Christ said, let the church be one as you and I are one, that in the, the mind of the Lord, if we can say that, is that we would be, we would have a thousand different denominations. No. So, if all this divide and disunity is an enemy of Christ, that means one day it will be dealt with. It will be. Optimistic kingdom work means that we will move towards a unified direction eventually, once we're done dis being disunited and continuing to divide over and over again. So work generationally, 
work generationally because it's consistent, optimistic kingdom work, and every Christian should be able to embrace that. Even if you want to be completely pre-mill, the world's going downhill, there's going to be no faith on earth, all this stuff, even if that's what you believe ultimately, work in such a way, at least for your children's and grandchildren's sake, as though the kingdom will be successful and we will work out this issue. Okay, number five. No more new denominations. No more. Done. That's it. Finny. Done. I don't want to hear about another Baptist denomination starting. I don't want to hear about another Presbyterian denomination starting. At By this point, do you think we've divided enough that we don't, we should not have more denominations? And there's a consideration here, even for independent churches. If you think of independent churches, they are like a denomination unto themselves. They are their own authority completely. They're not connected with anybody else in a, in a ministerial way. They are their own denomination. And so this also means that I think that church, all church plants should come from existing denominations. If you're not willing to work or be in a denomination, think about what that says, uh, how prideful that even is, that you don't believe that there is a denomination today that is a consistent enough outlook of Christian thought that you could join it. That, that's absurd. There are, there are a lot of good denominations, and you might not agree with every jot and tittle that they say or that they stand on, and that should be secondary. There are faithful denominations out there, and so we should be aligning with the most faithful representation going forward. And I think size is important here. It's like, for instance, if you have, uh, I'll, I'll use the Baptist example, you have a solid reform Baptist denomination in your area uh, that is large, much larger in your country, and they preach a, a true gospel, they, they got missionary efforts going on, lots of people in it, the most churches, all that. So it's a fine denomination. You might find some issues with it, and maybe they're not strong enough on some points, but like they're not heretical or anything. And then you have another Reformed Baptist denomination, and they are much smaller, significantly smaller, but they have a little bit more precise confessional uh, stands. They are a bit more theologically precise. They are making slightly better stands on the cultural issues. Which denomination should you join? I would argue you should join the bigger one. Because if we are going to start applying unity and the unity of denominations, those two denominations should work to merge. And they're not going to work to merge if they're both growing at similar uh, at similar rates and you have your more theologically minded going to the one and then you're still theologically fine but more maybe missions oriented going to the other one. They're going to continue to vie against each other and be and continue to stay divided. I think there's a real case to be made that if, the, if there are two faithful denominations, join the bigger one. As long as they're healthy. Join the bigger one. Uh, because the, And then work towards mergers because of that. Now, I am open to other considerations on, on that topic, but I wouldn't be quick to join a tiny denomination if there is a faithful larger one to join, because I think that applies better to the principles of uniting denominations. And my final principle to consider for uniting denominations is towards church leaders. I've been talking mostly just to everyday Christians, everyday believers, but this one is for church leaders in particular. Start laying the ground for denominational mergers. 
the people in your church do not have the authority to start laying the ground for denominational mergers. It's you, pastors. It's you, elders. So practically, you should have a relationship, or at least start laying the ground for relationships with leaders in other churches. And I don't mean just other churches in your own denomination. You should... Practically, this starts locally. Uh, you can call this county before country. You should have a closer relationship with the other Baptist denomination, that church that is in your town, the Presbyterian who is in your town, the Methodist who is in your town, and the Anglican who is in your town. You should have a better relationship with the leaders of those churches than you do relationship with the other Baptist church in your denomination who is 400 kilometers away. I sincerely believe that, that you should have a more functional ministerial relationship in terms of you, uh, doing outreach together, uh, get, having your people come together with other believers in your own city, your own town, than you do with your denominational interlocutors who are far away in different cities. Start thinking about this. This is how you build trust. This is how the Baptists and the Presbyterian build trust with one another. That we're not going at odds, but we're mutually working towards Christ's kingdom and, and giving the gospel to people, irrespective of, hey, you have to join my denomination. No, think bigger. And then finally, so if you're going to be gaining connections with the leadership of these other church leaders, uh, think also then of getting into the ears of the whole denominational leaders of those other denominations. So if you're part of FEB and you are a pastor, I think that you should seriously consider getting an, uh, getting an audience, getting connected with the denominational leaders of the Methodists in Canada, with the Anglicans here, and with the Presbyterians, of course. We should all, the leaders of these different denominations should have a relationship that moves towards unity. Not, hey, we're all inward focused, just focusing on ourselves. I don't even know the name of the guys who lead the, the Methodists. Or, uh, you know, No, you should start working towards this. This is important. Like Think generationally again. It's not just about us. It's not just about you. It's not just about our own church. It's the whole work, the whole kingdom. And so, no more splits into new denominations. No more. Only mergers from here on out. That's it. If you are tempted, say a church liberalizes, and genuinely there is heresy being taught, promoted, accepted, they are they're, they're becoming, they are false sheep, they have a false leader, uh, and the, the true believers need to leave. If that's going to happen and there's going to be a split, do not split into a new denomination. Only mergers. Find another denomination to merge into. I sincerely believe that Christians, we, we have a dire need in the church to begin uniting and merging rather than continue to, di to, to disunify. And this will, have, this will help our witness so much to the world. Plus, there's other benefits of this too, which maybe we'll talk about next week. But also next week, we're going to talk about concerns about practicality. I brought up that this is the big issue. How do we work together practically when we believe different things about who should be baptized and who are members of the church? or about the doctrine of predestination. So next week we're going to talk about issues of practicality regarding doctrine, regarding governance issues, like church government, Episcopal, uh, Presbyterian, and Congregational, 
as well as historical issues like wars. Catholics and Protestants have literally killed each other before. Grievances, past splits. How do we get past that? All right, I'm at 40 minutes. Ah, shame on me. We're going to work on that, continue to work on it. It's a work in progress. Thank you for listening to the City of the Great King podcast. I once again would invite you to consider becoming a patron. Thank you for listening. Come back last next week. Go in the nations. God bless. Bye-bye. <laughs>